this evening I've got the privilege to, to land this journey, and we will be talking about a, a very controversial topic. Uh, why I'm using the word controversial, I mean, controversy just means there's a lot of argument, there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of question. That's what controversy actually means. And just the chat or the, uh, the topic for us this, this evening is just communicating about finances. That's pretty much what we will be chatting about. And just the heart behind this particular topic, I truly believe, you know, as we, as we went through the past six, seven weeks of this journey, um, we, we touched on different topics, and I like to believe the different topics touched, to, touched you guys uh, very differently. But the one we're chatting about this evening, I truly believe some of you don't actually have a marriage problem. I really do believe you do not have a marriage problem. However, you have a finance problem. And then the problem is by virtue of having a finance problem, it actually makes your marriage quite sour. And because your marriage is sour, then it comes across as you've got a marriage problem. But the reality is actually you have a finance problem. And just to put it into perspective, when I went to Google, I was just quite curious, just to have an understanding of how often do, does the Bible talk about money? And it says, did you know there's roughly 2,350 verses concerning money in the Bible? That's almost twice as many verses about faith and prayer combined. That's, that's actually quite interesting. And it says, Jesus had a lot to say about money. Nearly 15% of everything Jesus spoke about related to money and possessions, which then makes me once again ask the question, do we have a marriage problem or perhaps we might have a finance problem? And maybe just to set the a foundation in terms of why finances are quite sensitive. I mean, it is quite a sensitive topic. I just want to use just the story of Genesis 4 once again to paint a, a, a foundation, and that's the story of Cain and Abel. Um, the Bible talks about how um, Cain was a, a, a fresh-produced farmer or vegetable farmer, and then Abel was like an animal farmer. Pretty much that's what it is. But if I extrapolated that to today, whether you are a, uh, a farmer of fresh produce, which is crops, or maybe you're a farmer of animals, the reality is those, those veggies or those animals in today's terms would be what we call inventory or stock. And inventory and stock in today's term translate to money. That, that's what it would be. So if I had to just, just re-looking at the scripture again, I'm just looking at how the Bible then said um, when it was time to give to God, um, Cain gave some of his money to God, whilst Abel gave the best of his money to God. And then as you continue reading the scripture, you see how then he talks about how God then accepts Abel's gifts, but then he rejects Cain's gifts. And then obviously because his gifts or his money was rejected, we see how in the Bible Cain is, is, is the Bible uses the word he was dejected. Dejected actually means he was sad, he was depressed. And because he was sad and depressed, it got to a point where actually God spoke to him and said, hey, be careful, sin is creeping at, the, at, at your door, you need to subdue it. But we see how Cain doesn't actually subdue um, this, this feeling that he had. He lures his brother to a field. And then Genesis 4, verse 8, we see the first biblical record of murder in the Bible. And if I had to maybe just trace it back in terms of when we look at the heart of this first murder in the Bible, I like to believe that Cain's attitude or, or understanding about finances played a part um, to the first murder in the Bible. And, and why am I just framing this this way this evening? I just want to just set this foundation to say finance misunderstood 
miscommunicated or not communicated at all is a ticking time bomb for your marriage. So finances misunderstood, miscommunicated, or not communicated at all is a ticking time bomb from your marriage. And we see this today. I mean, if you read News 24, all these different news outlets, or maybe you watch CNN or ENCA, whatever news outlets you watch, till today we see so many killings, so many murders in marriages because of finances. And I remember a couple of years back uh, when we were still in youth ministry, I remember with, with Chad and whatnot, we, we got to a point where I remember we were preaching to the youth and we felt like we were just not getting through to the youth. And we asked them, hey, tell us what you want us to preach about. And I remember two sentences I'll never forget, I think for the rest of my life. One of the youth actually wrote on a paper and he said, hey, my, my parents actually sleep in different rooms because of money. And I'm sitting there thinking, sure, that's, that's quite hectic. Another youth actually said, hey, my parents are constantly arguing, constantly fighting about money. So we get to see once again that money is quite a sensitive, or finances is quite a sensitive topic. And the reality is, for us to effectively communicate about finances, I really truly believe that there's a lot of unlearning or there's there's some baggages that we need to unlearn. If you look at basic communication, I mean, communication is just receiving and giving of of, I guess, information. That's what it is. That's what communication is. But I think what actually happens in marriages or relationships, whatever you want to call it, is as opposed to us having a fruitful or healthy conversation, what happens is there's a, there's a giving and there's a receiving of baggage. That's literally what we're doing. And that's actually quite toxic and that's actually not healthy for your marriage. And if you just look quickly at some baggage or some baggage that we carry into the marriage, the first one would be like your money bias. I mean, that's quite a, that's a baggage we can carry into a marriage. So, for example, what I mean by money bias is, for example, um, your personality. Are you, are you the type that likes to spend? Are you the type that likes to save? Well, in our marriage, well, I've repented of this. But earlier in my marriage, I was more the spender, the reckless emotional spender. And my wife, Grace, was more the one that saves, the one that's more conservative. I mean, that, once again, gives you a particular bias when it comes to finances. Another thing that plays a part when when we're looking at money buyers is your family background. So when you grew up, who actually ran the finances? Was it your mom? Was it your dad? Or was it combined? Also, that plays a part in terms of how you handle the topic of finances. Another aspect, if we're looking at money buyers, would be something as simple as life experience. So for example, there was this guy that I worked with. He was just fairly above 50 years old or what they call it at work, level five. I don't know why they call it level five, but anyway. And the guy got to this point where he realized that a lot of his peers, a lot of people that he grew up with were, were passing away, and he just made this decision to say, you know what, what if I'm next, so I'm, I'm just going to stop saving and I'm just going to go on a splurging spree because you never know when my time is next. Once again, you see how that actually shaped the way he dealt with finances. Another bias that we see, or another baggage, sorry, we see is unhealthy view on debt, you know, whether it be it loans, whether it be credit card, bond repayments, vehicle repayments, whatever you want to call it, that also, once again, if we've got an unhealthy view uh, of that, that actually becomes baggage that we carry into our marriage. And then another baggage that we, we, we might carry into our marriage is, um, I call this unreasonable family demands. Unreasonable family demands. Uh, maybe there's a nicer, better word out there, but the way I know this, I call it black text. That's how I know this. 
and predominantly black techs, and, 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 and please hear my heart, I'm not talking about a situation where, you know, you, you're the only person that's working at home and you, you're supporting, you know, your siblings. That's not what I'm talking about. The Bible does encourage us to actually take care of our family. I'm talking about unreasonable demands where, for example, it's like an actual debit order. So every month it's a, it's a, it's, it's a force. You have to pay, you know, ex, an X amount of, you know, uh, money. Um, I remember maybe just to give you an example. When I was a trainee, you know, when you're a trainee, you don't really earn much. You just earn enough money just to pay rent, just to buy food, and that's it. And I remember my, my, my friend's uh, mom, my, my maid's mom, actually said, hey, you work... I need a new kitchen. And the poor guy's like, Mom, I I can't afford this. And she's like, I don't care. You work. I need a brand new kitchen. The poor guy had to take a loan. I mean, that's what what happened. But the point I'm trying to make is also that if that's not dealt well, we find ourselves carrying unhealthy, you know, baggages into our marriage. Another baggage that we might find ourselves carrying into marriage is financial infidelity. Financial infidelity. So financial infidelity is pretty much... You guys are married, but either the wife or either the husband has like a secret account, like a little little secret stash that the other person does not know about. And maybe just to be blunt, and let me call this account for what it is. So financial infidelity is literally um, having an account on the side just in case he or she cheats, then I'm ready. That's what financial infidelity is. And unfortunately, we see this also in the life of the church where people have all the secret stash accounts. Once again, if we carry that thinking or that behavior into marriage, obviously we are carrying baggage and it makes it hard for us to have healthy communication about finances in our marriage. Then the question is, then how do we, how do we get to a point where we, we speak from a place of common ground? And then there's two scriptures this evening that I'll just take you through. And once again, my, my goal this evening is not to give you a 10-step process on how to fix your finances. My goal this evening is to actually show you from scripture where your mindset should be to empower you guys to go back to, to empower you guys actually to go back at home and for you guys to start having fruitful conversations about finances. What if maybe you, you might say, hey, but I'm not married. Well, once again, we're giving you tools that eventually when you find that significant other that God blesses you with, you actually have the right biblical foundation about finances. That's literally my goal this evening. So the first scripture is in Matthew 25, uh, verse 14 to 18. It says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Then the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put the money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So just a bit of context. The scripture actually is more talking about faithfulness and actually using our giftings. That's pretty much the heart of what the scripture is talking about. But the reason why I'm using the scripture is I love how as much as Jesus is talking about faithfulness, you know, up until, you know, Jesus comes back, I love how he uses a picture of money just to help us understand, um, once again, the dynamics of money. And the first thing that we see there in terms of having a healthy biblical financial view is the fact that the source of our finances is God. That, that's pretty much it. The source of our finances is God. 
the measure of a person today, unfortunately, is based on your bank balance or it's based on how rich you are or it's based on whether you're the top 10 Forbes, whatever the heck it might be. And unfortunately, because of that, we've actually build our identity on money. But the reality is when we look at this and for us to actually communicate about finances, we need to detach our identity from money and have a revelation and understand that the source of finances is God. I mean, here's the reality, and and maybe I don't know why we maybe think like this. We can easily believe that Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and we can believe that. We can can put um, stickers in our household. We can tell our kids about, you know, God is the creator of the world. But for some reason, when it comes to money, it's like we draw the line. It's like it's either we, we, we maybe are not taught about it, or we choose to forget that that same God that we believe is the one that created the heavens and the earth is the same God that actually is the source of our funds. And that's the first thing that we see here this evening, church, that the source of finance is God. And I love the revelation that David had in First Chronicles uh, verse 29. It says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. That is quite a beautiful revelation. We've only given you what comes from your hand. The NLT version actually says, we give you only what you first gave us. What a beautiful revelation where David understood that everything that we have, everything that we might own, it's it's actually not from us. The source of everything that we own, the source of that is God himself. And I mean, the beauty about this is, All things come from God. God alone is the source of all things. And then a healthy financial view is to understand that or is to know that God is our provider. Healthy financial view is to also understand that generosity is merely giving what God first gave us. That's literally the first thing that we understand. So the first thing there or a biblical mindset view we should have is the, the, the source of finances is God. Then the second thing that we see from the scripture in terms of Matthew 25, it's just, it's just that word, entrusted. We've been entrusted. I mean, once again, if you look at the story that we just read, it talks about how this man is going on a journey, but before he goes on a journey, he entrusts five bags of gold to one of the servants. He entrusts two bags of gold to one of the servants, and then he entrusts one bag of gold to the other servant. Why is that word quite important, the word entrust? I was trying to just understand when was this word first used in the Bible. And the first time that the word was actually used was um, all the way with, the, with Joseph, um, when Joseph was under the household of Potiphar. And we see how in that one story, the Bible actually says that Potiphar entrusted Joseph with his entire household. Now, Think about that for a second. If someone comes to you and says, I would love to entrust you with my household, or I entrust you with this business, or maybe better yet, maybe your calling is to to, to lead the country, maybe you've been entrusted to lead the country. What that means is the person that has entrusted you with that means they see um, 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 characters in you where you've got the ability to steward what you've been entrusted with. And I think the second thing there, church, that we need to understand is, yes, we, God is the source of our finances, and yes, we've been given these finances, but also we need to understand in our minds that we've been entrusted with the finances that we have. We have been entrusted with the finances that we have. And I mean, maybe just to carry on with the story of Joseph, 
Yes, he was entrusted to, to look after the household of Potiphar. Um, stuff went down. Things didn't really happen. didn't go according to, to plan. Anyway, if you fast forward and you read the story of Joseph, you see how later on he was put or he was made the second most powerful person in Egypt. So basically, he was entrusted to look after Egypt. I mean, that's what it means. And the beauty about that is Joseph had this revelation or he understood that he had a big responsibility when he was entrusted to look after Egypt. I mean, why am I saying that? I mean, Joseph had just interpreted Pharaoh's dream. He had told Pharaoh that, hey, for the next seven years as Egypt, we're going to go through a season of abundance. But then after a season of abundance, we're going to go through seven years of famine. Now, once again, when, when that seven years of, of abundance hit, I love how the Bible talks about how they, they obviously had food, but they, they were also saving. And the Bible says they saved so much that they just they, they stopped counting. I mean, can you imagine when you save to a point where there is no number in the world that can actually account to the amount of saving that you did? I mean, once again, we see how they saved so much. And then when famine hit... Not only was Egypt dependent on what Joseph had saved, it talks about how even the nearing countries or the, yeah, the countries that were surrounding Egypt had to go to Egypt in seek of food. Now, here's the question. Can you imagine if, once again, Joseph is put in this place, he's been entrusted to look after Egypt, and then during the, the, the season of abundance, can you imagine if Joseph just squandered all the grain and he was just, I'll use the word, he was just, yeah, stupid with the money or whatever it is. Can you imagine what would have happened? It means in the seven years of famine, we would have been reading maybe a different type of Bible or a different account where maybe it would have said so many people died because of famine. But because Joseph understood that he has been entrusted, he had a responsibility to look after what he's been given, that's why I'm highlighting this, that the second thing that we need to have church, especially when we're looking at finances, is we need to understand that we are entrusted with the finances that we have. And the reality is, I mean, the Bible talks about how they were all entrusted according to their ability. So the reality is God will not give us the same. That, that's what we see. So not all of us will receive the same abilities, the same talents. But regardless of whether you're getting five, two, or one, you still have a responsibility. I still have a responsibility where we've been entrusted with these finances. So that's the second thing that we see in the scripture. The third thing that we see or the third mindset we should have when it comes to finances, is an attitude of fruitfulness. We need to have an attitude of fruitfulness. If I carry on reading uh, Matthew 25, if I start reading from Matthew 19, it says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of, five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. 
His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and then they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and thrown and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot of stuff we can actually talk about this passage, but there's just one thing I just want to pull out, especially in terms of attitude of fruitfulness. Now, if you look at the scripture, and, and please hear my heart, I mean, biblically, there's nothing as big sin or small sin. All, all sin is the same. But just hear my heart for two seconds. I mean, once again, let's read that, that story in today's context. If we look at, once again, when, when the Bible talks about one person was given a talent or they were given a gold, if you're to translate that in today's terms, that's roughly 20 years worth of a salary. That's what a one gold or one talent was equivalent to. So I've been working for roughly 12 years, so that's almost 20 years. So if I had to reread that, that story once again in today's terms, it talks about how God would call the, the first guy whom he gave the, the five uh, bags of talent, and the guy would have been like, hey, you gave me five, here's another five back. And then he would call the second guy, and the second guy would say, hey, you gave me two, here's two back. Now, if I was the, the guy that was given the one uh, bag of gold, when the master comes and says, hey, where's, where's the gold? Two things would have happened. Number one, I would have lost it. Number two, I, I would have actually been in debt. I would have lost it, or I would have been in debt. I would have to go back to the master and say, hey, can I work a bit of overtime? I need a little bit of money so that I'm able to pay you back what you first gave me. What's the point I'm trying to highlight? Look at how harshly that servant was, was, was judged, and he did not even lose the talent. But look at, look at the standard or look at where we are now. What we've been given, we can't even replicate it back. We can't even give it back. We are either stuck in debt or, once again, we're stuck in a lifestyle where we can't even be fruitful. Church, we are called to live a life of, or we, we can see in the scripture where the attitude of fruitfulness is key in our lives. And maybe just to talk a little bit about debt, I mean, I'm just scratching the surface. We could actually have a four-part series about debt. But once again, if you look, if you actually read your Bible, if you look at what scripture uh, talks about debt, I mean, in Deuteronomy, I love, I was reading this one scripture that spoke about how, you know, every seven years they used to cancel debt. And then straight after that scripture, it spoke about how you could hear the heart of God, which would say the point of it was there shouldn't be any poor among you. And the heart behind it was even once again, them days in Deuteronomy, God knew if you are always stuck in the cycle of interest, if you're stuck in the cycle of debt, it makes it near impossible to get out. And then what happens is you 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 stuck, and then obviously once again it keeps you poor. And unfortunately, that's what happens when we obviously talking about debt. And the reason why I'm stressing this right now at this point is maybe you know as a family you, that's that's where you are. And just my encouragement for you this evening is go back, sit down, and get out of debt, and talk about how are you guys going to get out of debt. And just like what I shared in the morning, I've been there. I've been that guy that has been stuck in debt. Um, I've been that guy that had to sit down. I remember that uh, Brent was actually preaching 
a financial repentance course years back, and I was the guy sitting there, you know, stuck in debt, and I remember I caught that revelation of we are not called to be in debt. It took me almost three and a half years, if not four years, to, to get out of debt, to actually be in a point where I was neutral, not, not that I was on the other side, but it took me about three to four years to actually get out of debt. And, and how did I do that? I, I had to actually drop my pride and realize that, hey, I need to downgrade certain areas in my life. And the reason, once again, I'm just scratching the surface. This is a, quite a big topic. But the reason I'm saying this to you is maybe that's, that's where you guys are as a family. And you guys are, are saying, you know, should we, should we not downgrade? Should we? I'm saying I've done it for four years. I didn't die. I'm still standing here. You guys won't die. The best thing you can do for your marriage is actually live according to what God has given you. Don't, don't live you know, above your means. And I just felt it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I felt I had to just really talk about that, that if you find yourself in that, in, in that cycle, you need to talk about it, find a way to actually, once again, there are people that are qualified to help you formally, help you get out of debt. But anyway, just to get back to the attitude of fruitfulness, and once again, maybe just to share, what does it mean when we have an attitude of fruitfulness? And I mean, here's the reality, and I'm not talking about tithing. I mean, once again, maybe you might be sitting there thinking, oh, this guy's going to trap us. He's going to talk about tithing. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about what does it look like when, as a church, maybe just for two seconds, imagine with me. Uh, once again, I remember Brent shared this one vision or what he saw when he was in America once. Can you ma- imagine as a church, I mean, if I look around, we've got so many skills, we've got so many giftings in the church. Can you imagine, maybe you, you're a mechanic, you know, I mean, you, you're quite good with your hands. You're quite good at fixing money. And maybe you get this revelation that, hey, if I'm called to be fruitful, if I'm called to use my skills, maybe one Saturday a month, I will tithe my time, not money. I will tithe my time. I come maybe to like, let's assume maybe, maybe in the future as Outlook, we've got like a garage. You tithe one Saturday and your job is to say for that Saturday, there, there are ladies, there are people that can't afford to service their car. I will service your car for free. That's, that's, that's kingdom thinking. Or maybe, for example, you, you, you might have resources where you can afford to buy a car, but obviously you don't need to trade in your current one. And you're like, hey, I'm just going to donate my vehicle because you know there's probably a struggling widow out there with kids that will definitely benefit from the vehicle that you have. I'm just using simple examples to remind us of what it means like or what, what the church could be when we're living from a place of generosity, when we're living from a place of fruitfulness as opposed to being stuck in a cycle of debt. I remember, I think it was last year when Steve Wimble came and he spoke to us as a church and he spoke about how there was this one person in his church that felt in his heart to start an NGO. And then over COVID, they, they, they provided over 20 million rand of aid during the, during the COVID season, you know, in and around the different areas. The point I'm trying to say is, church, we are called to have an attitude of fruitfulness. But once again, if we're stuck in the cycle of debt, we can't even begin to think about what life would look like from a fruitful point of view. So the three things we see from the scripture is God is the source of our finances. The second thing that we see there is we are entrusted with the finances that we have. And the third thing we see there is we need to have an attitude of fruitfulness. And the second thing that we see, if I read from another scripture, which is Genesis 2, verse 23 to 25, it says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, 
but they felt no shame. And another just practical handle to help us have meaningful conversations is we need to understand that finances should be handled from a place of unity and there should not be any barriers amongst you. From a place of unity and there shouldn't be any barriers among you. So what do I mean? So let's start off with, let's assume you're in a household where one person works. Could be the husband, could be the wife. Here's the reality. The one that is the breadwinner is not the boss of the finances in the household. You are not the king, you are not the queen of the finances. Biblical healthy view in terms of how finances should be run is the Bible says you guys are one. So in terms of that, it's not about whether you're the breadwinner or you're the breadwinner. No, those are household finances. And when decisions need to be made, you make them together regardless of whether you're the breadwinner or not. That's how finances are supposed to be addressed if we look at it from a biblical point of view. And then number two, let's assume you both work. Both of you, once again, the husband works or, or, or the wife works. You know, how, how do you handle finances in that regard? It's not the one who has the highest salary that, once again, is the boss in terms of making decisions. Once again, it's not two separate incomes in the household. It is still one income. You put that together, and when decisions are made, you make it from a place of one household income. And maybe please forgive me for this, but I, I am absolutely horrified when I hear statements like, you know, I, I took my wife out on a date, and we need to split the bill. And I'm thinking, what do you mean you split the bill? Or you hear stories like, no, my wife owes me or my husband owes me. I don't understand. How do you guys owe each other? It's not supposed to be like that. Biblically, once again, we truly believe that we are united and we are one. But for some reason, when it comes to running household finances, we run them separately. Household separate, uh, once again, finances in a household are run together. So maybe just to give an example, if I look at our household, it's not Grace and her salary that side, and then it's me with my salary. No, no, that, that's, that's, that's ridiculous thinking. If we go back to scripture, it's not two different, two different salaries. It's actually, yes, two streams of income, making one income. And when we make decisions, we make them together. That's what biblical marriage or biblical finances should be, should be run. The third thing that we see, once again, when we're looking about unity and absence of barriers, and this is more for, uh, there's not a lot of parents I see here, uh, but anyway, I'm just going to say it, just for the parents. I'm just going to chat to you guys for two seconds. If, if you're the parent that loves to make decisions for your kids, loving kindness, stop it. Really, stop it. You are not supposed to be making financial decisions for your kids. You know, you might come to me and say, no, no, but Chaz, you don't understand. If they make decisions, it's a bit risky. They're going to make the wrong decisions. I'm here to say, let them make those decisions and let them fail. And I'll tell you why. The reason why a lot of marriages fail is because the fundamental skill for both husband and wife to problem solve together is lacking because every time a, a problem is there, parents are busy making decisions for the kids. So hence, it makes sense for them to actually make decisions for themselves, let them fail. And the beauty about this is now they know what doesn't work for their marriage. And once again, in loving kindness, if you're that parent that loves to make decisions for your kids, stop it. Repent of that. Now, once again, let me flip the script. Now, that was for, for the older folks. And then us, 
younger folks, me included. If you, that couple, now where you keep running to mommy and daddy for decisions, stop it. What does the Bible say? The Bible says you are married to your wife, you are not married to your mom, you are not married to your dad, you are married to your spouse. So once again, when it comes to making financial decisions, you guys need to make the decision, not your parents. So stop running to your parents. And maybe that's what you guys do. If that's what you guys do in loving kindness, stop it and repent of that this evening. Now, I'm not going to be oblivious and say it's easy. It's not easy, especially if, if your parents have always been making decisions and now you need to, you know, draw a line in the center. It's not easy. Maybe just to share um, a story. My, my, my best friend, when, when he got married, his dad actually never attended his wedding. That, that's, that's actually what happened. Because what had happened was, leading up to the wedding, um, unfortunately, his parents were divorced and um, the parents were, were using money to like spite the other parent. And the guy said, you know what, this, this is an unhealthy behavior. I do not want this behavior when I get married. You guys need to sort yourself out. Thank you for trying to sponsor our wedding. But you know what, my wife and I have enough resources. We will sort out our own wedding because we don't want to be dragged into this you know, stuff. And his dad was like, okay, because you don't want us to pray for your wedding, you know what, we're not even going to come to your wedding. And he said, if that's the so be it. But I will not allow you to dictate how my marriage will look like. So the reason why I'm saying that is I, I don't want you to, maybe you're going to walk out of here, have a conversation with your parents, and then maybe they, I don't know, kick you out. And then you come and you say, Pastor, you, you didn't warn me. I'm warning you in advance. It's not easy. But once again, let's look at what the Bible says. You are not married to your parents. You're married to each other. Uh, so that's the one thing that we see. And then uh, just another thing, once again, in terms of unity and absence of barriers is just transparency. Maybe, maybe in your marriage, you, you that spouse that have that secret stash account, maybe it's time to really repent of that and say, hey, you know, I've, I've been carrying some unhealthy baggage and I think it's time to really talk about it. Once again, I'm not oblivious. Some people can't handle those conversations. Some people can't. In the instance where maybe they can't handle those situations, call a pastor, call someone to have a chat just to be a mediator. But once again, like I said earlier on, finances miscommunicated or not understood becomes a ticking time bomb in your marriage. And then just lastly, there's a book I'm actually reading. Um, it's called The Man Who Could Do No Wrong. Um, it just talks about this one pastor that, that built like a massive empire. And it was so massive, everything was fine up until it wasn't. And um, I guess there was financial issues. There was theft, bribery, whatever you want to call it. And this poor pastor lost everything and eventually got arrested. And then when they were actually interviewing this pastor and they said, when did everything start to go wrong? And he actually said, things started to go wrong when I stopped listening to my wife. Another thing that he said was, he said, we were not of one accord, um, and he said, I would never dare violate the warning of Ephesians 5.21 that talks about how we need to submit to each other out of reverence of Christ. So what am I trying to say? Healthy, once again, communication in terms of finances in marriage is not you saying yes, 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 and agreeing everything. No, you, you're going to have disagreements, but the disagreements aren't necessarily I disagree with you, you're wrong. It's more necessarily, you want to make a decision and you come there and say, you know what, I don't have peace about this. That's healthy. 
You remember once again, I mean, Brent, when he taught the first lesson, he reminded us that we are like 50%, our spouse is 50%, and if you multiply the two, that makes one. So if you're constantly making decisions by yourself, you only have 50% of the view. You need to, once again, make decisions together. You need to be of one accord. And let peace be the guiding factor when you guys have communication, especially from a finance uh, space. Maybe just to share, um, I, I shared this example in the morning. My wife and I, we, we recently bought a house, and we were looking for over a year and a half. And I remember it started even from the beginning. We, I remember the, 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 the temptation is you go on new, uh, private property or property 24, you see these beautiful houses, and the temptation was, yeah, let's go to the bank and ask for that amount. And then we would sit around and say, yeah, those houses are beautiful. I mean, yeah, we could see ourselves in the houses. But then one of us would say, I don't have peace about that price tag. That, that's against our family values. I don't have peace about it. Then we spend time, we pray about it, we come back and we say, hey, you know, is this now the price we need to actually, oh, sorry, is this the price now we need to actually, you know, go to the bank and, 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 and ask for finance? Pray about it and we said, yes, now both of us have peace. Just to give you an idea, we didn't go to the bank and say, tell us what we can afford. We sat and we said, what is the number we feel we've got peace about? And then we agreed. Same thing when it came to actually house hunting. I remember there was a house that I saw, and I'm like, Grace, surely this is the one. And Grace would be like, I don't have peace about it. Obviously, I'd be frustrated. I'm like, I'm a woman. Come on. This is our home. You need to agree with me. Forget about the peace. But obviously, as obviously, once again, you know, the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, hey, stop it. And then you go back. You're like, okay, I'm not going to pull the trigger. If you don't have peace about it, we're going to relax. And then once, you know, a couple of days later, you realize, wow, that, that house was not meant for you. And similarly, Grace will say the same thing. We'll walk into a house and he says, babe, come on. I see our family in this house. This house is going to be great. And same thing, I'm like, but I just don't have peace about this house. So for a year and a half, that's literally how we made a decision, which was like, do you have peace, yes or no? Up until, once again, after a year and a half later, we, there was this one house that we, uh, the agent actually called us to go look at. And it was quite funny how, once again, when we allow, when we allow the peace of God, or when we wait on God, I remember when we were actually driving towards the house, I remember telling Grace, we're just literally, I think, like 15 seconds to arriving to the house. I said, hey, Grace, I feel, I feel we're driving into our future house. And Grace looks at me and she says, funny enough, I agree with you. Bam, we were of one accord. We walked into the house. I didn't even look at the house. I just, I literally, I remember walking into the front door. I said, Grace, this is our home. I'm not even going to look into it. And she says, for the first time, I agree with you. And that's how I knew the peace of God had allowed us to actually agree. And the reason I'm sharing this story is, I'm not, once again, you know, you might walk out of here thinking financial communication might take, you know, all, you, you might walk out of here thinking it takes an hour and then you guys make a decision. Sometimes it means you guys are going to go back and forth. And that is fine. That is healthy. But the point I'm trying to make is in, when it comes to financial decision making or even any other decision making in your household, the decisions need to be made when both of you guys are of one accord, when both of you guys have the peace of God in your heart. Amen? And just my prayer, just as we land, it's just my prayer is we just get this revelation that biblical marriages are or should be rooted in the gospel. And if your marriage is not rooted in the gospel, really, let's repent of that. And also just... 
just this prayer for me, for you guys, is that, you know, when we look at Jesus Christ, everything that he did, he did that out of an overflow of communication with his Father. And I really feel that as, as a couple, I'd love to encourage you guys, communicate. That's it. Chances are you've probably picked up as we're going through this journey. Majority of the issues, it's not that you guys don't know. Chances are you're just not communicating. That, that, that's, that's what it is. Three months back, um, I was back in Limpopo, and I went to a, to, to a friend's wedding. And my other friend who got married in November last year, so he's just been married, married for roughly just under a year. And I remember just saying, hey, how are you doing? And you could see his face was down. And something just said, hey, after the wedding, come home. Let's, let's have a coffee. You and your wife, have a coffee with me and Grace. Let's just talk about this. Let's just see what's happening. So after the wedding, they came through, and we spoke for just under three hours. And, you know, as we're chatting, or, well, they were talking more than anything, they, you could see they started talking. The husband would talk, and then he'd be scared, and then the wife would talk. And then after a while, they started talking, and they started working, you know, whatever issues they were having. And what was interesting was we never helped them fix anything. As they're talking, they realized that they were just unpacking the issues that they have, and obviously they realized, hey, there were some unhealthy things that they need to address. And the sad thing about this is they were, they, they, for the last six months of their marriage, they were not communicating. They felt they were actually embarrassed to talk about it, and they felt, they were a, a, they felt that their marriage was, was a failure. And I mean, imagine, six months in, they were starting to think, flip, are we going to be that couple that actually gets divorced? But once again, after a three-hour conversation, just talking, they realized, oh, wait a minute. Hey, people actually do go through what we're going through. These are just a few adjustments we need to make, and we're good to go. So just my final or prayer, especially when it comes to this journey, is you, as much as we're landing this journey, I would love to encourage you, continue to have conversations, continue to be in one accord. 90% of the issues, once again, you might have or I might have in marriage can simply be solved if you guys just communicate. That's pretty much what it is. And that's ultimately my prayer for this journey. And then as we land, um, if you can please stand up. I'd just love to land the actual journey now. Um, there's this scripture in Malachi 2. Uh, it says, You cry out, Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. And just the point I'm trying to make is, for those that are married, you know, when you made those wedding vows, it was not just the, you, you, were, you were not just making those vows to your wife. God was present when you made those vows. And just the point I'm trying to do as, I, as we land this journey is maybe, and I'm going to quickly read the, the, the vows that we normally do, we normally say, is as I read those vows, and maybe you feel, hey, that, that, that part of that vow that I made to my spouse, I, I'm really not living it out. There's an opportunity this evening, once again, just to repent of that so that we have the marriage that we've been called to have. So, for example, as guys... This is pretty much some of the words that we would say in terms of vows. So we would say, according to the word of God, I join myself to you as your husband. My promise as we enter this covenant before God and these witnesses is to love, care, respect, honor you as my wife in Jesus 
and to be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. And I think men, once again, let's, let's take that to heart. And as, as ladies, some of your vows would be something like, by the grace of God, I will be the wife God intends. I will be besides you in good times and in bad times to encourage you, to cry with you when you're sad, to rejoice with you when you rejoice, to stand by you in everything that you do, because as your wife, I become one with you. I will submit to you as God requires, giving you respect and honor as the head of the home, and be faithful to you as we both shall live. Amen? Really trusting that this journey has really um, fanned into flame, just once again, love into your marriage. I really pray that this, this, this journey fanned into flame, just, you know, God's goodness, God's kindness over your marriage. And Father, we come before you this, this evening, and Father, I just want to rededicate marriages to you afresh this evening. Father, I say thank you for the institution of marriage. Thank you that in the institution of marriage, we get to see just how good you are. We just get to see just your mercy. We just, we just get to see just your, your amazing grace. And Father, I pray for marriages that are, that are full of love. Father, I pray for marriages where there's, there's, there's forgiveness in marriages. Father, I pray for marriages that are on mission. But above all, Father, I pray for marriages that are rooted in the gospel. Because, Father, when, when, when marriages are rooted in the gospel, when Christ is the foundation of our marriage, we then are able to, to, to walk out or live out this marriage in a biblical way, in a way that pleases you, our dear Heavenly Father. Father, I pray for blessings in terms of marriages. Father, where, they, where provision is needed, Father, I also pray for provision. And also, I just want to pray for those that are looking for spouses. And Father, I pray that you are the great provider. You are the one that gives. You are the one that provides. And Father, I pray that you also provide a suitable partner for those, Father, that are searching. And as Father, as we're landing this journey, yes, we are landing the journey. But I pray this journey becomes a springboard for a lot of marriages to, to, be, to move from good to great. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.